were first announced last December and in the wake of protests. Um, and you're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to The Week on 3. I'm Christy Lai. Hope you're having a great day so far. Like always, it's time to listen again to some of our fun and exciting interviews here on Radio 3. Let's start with something that we've all been waiting for, the Olympics. Yesterday was the opening of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, and we finally got to see all the athletes gathering from all over the world to compete in exciting sport events. This year, we have 42 athletes representing Hong Kong in the Games, and we are sure going to be rooting for them. But have you ever wondered what goes into training for as an athlete? And how do they prepare for competitions, events, and more? On Thursday's Morning Brew, Dr. Trisha Leahy, Chief Executive of the Hong Kong Sports Institute, told Phil Whelan the behind the scenes. Well, the Hong Kong Sports Institute is basically the government's designated high-performance training center for all of the high-performance athletes in Hong Kong, including those going to World Champs, Olympics, Asian Games, Paralympics, uh, all of the major events. Mm -hmm. So you're right. Started life in around 1981 as the Jubilee Sports Center. It then progressed through various iterations, including mm -hmm. at one point it was a statutory body called the Sports Development Board. Right. And now since 2004, we we are in this current iteration where we provide uh, basically a whole system of high performance training for sports that meets meet certain benchmarks. Mm -hmm. So the whole system includes hardware and software. So we have venues, we provide the coaching teams, we have scientific and medical centers, because of course it's not just about talented athletes. And certainly not these days, it's yes, super science, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So we have a whole range of uh, scientific disciplines, including bio biochemistry, biomechanics, technology, nutrition, psychology, etc. Anything that you can think of mm. that might give us an edge when it comes to performance. And then, of course, we have a whole medical department making sure the athletes are injury free or if they get injured, that they recover as fast as possible. Yeah. So, if I, so was, if I was a young Hong Kong super talented athlete and I passed the bar for the Sports Institute, what next? Well, look, it takes about eight to 10 years for to develop an athlete to the point where they're getting starting to get really competitive on the world stage. Right. And then probably another eight years where you then, you know, optimizing that investment and hoping that they keep going uh, and keep training. Mm -hmm. So at the Institute, we provide accommodation for the athletes to live. And also, as you just pointed out, it's young athletes that we're developing onto the world stage. So this coincides with their prime education years. Mm. So in order to solve the problem of the conflict between education and sports training, both of which require full-time commitment, basically, yeah. we've developed a series of partnerships with local schools, including the uh, Lang Tai Fai College mm -hmm. and with the ESF. And these schools allow the athletes to train full-time as well as getting access to flexible education. And then once they finish their high school, mm. we then have a series of agreements with all of the UGC-funded universities 
and some of the private universities to be able to let them have a kind of a through train access pathway hmm. to continue their studies. Do you find that their academic levels are actually pretty high because it sounds like they have to be super organized on your side of things and that will translate into the academic side? Is that is that correct? Noticeable? Correct. Yes, absolutely. Um, the, you know, the old notion, maybe 30 years ago, the idea that if you didn't succeed academically, you could do sports. Yeah. I mean, that's just not the case in today's world. Every athlete now needs to be aware of how to use all the scientific programs around them. Um, you know, for example, we've recently been in collaboration with the University of Science and Technology looking at uh, computational fluid dynamics modeling to help Sarah, Sarah Lee, one mm. of our top cyclists, to optimize her opportunities at the Olympic Games. So for athletes to be able to understand all this data, how to strategically analyze their own performance and how to engage with experts in various disciplines, they have to be really, really clued in. So academic development, we call it a dual career pathway, right. is extremely important for us. This is the kind of prep that's happening all over the world, I'm assuming. So you guys have to do these things. Yes, exactly right. Um, you know, long gone are the days when you just had a gifted athlete followed by a, a visionary coach. Now there's a whole system around the athlete and the powerhouses, including China, Japan, Korea, who are very strong partners with us, are all following along similar, uh, similar pathways. So we're all striving to find that edge, leaving no stone unturned um, and making sure the athletes are in the best physical and psychological condition when it does come to the Olympic Games. The stuff you've just talked about is very much what movies are made of, isn't it? You know, the yep. talented, talented athlete and charismatic <laughs> coach. That's what we all exactly. have. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I don't, I don't know an awful lot about Hong Kong's history as a participant in the Olympics in general. Perhaps you can help. Sure. I mean, Hong Kong has participated in the Olympics I believe since the 50s. Mm. Um, this time around, as we go to Tokyo, uh, we have a delegation of 46 athletes. This is the largest delegation from the Hong Kong SAR. Um, and it's the second largest delegation ever. But the previous larger delegation was from a time when qualifications were not required. So this is the largest delegation under very rigid qualification systems. So in other words, you're getting the cream of the cream, the best of the best are the only ones who go to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. um, so with these 46 athletes across 14 sports, uh, we are um, really now focusing on the fine-tuning of the last-minute preparation. And one of the things, of course, as you can imagine, the whole COVID situation no was an ex a huge challenge for everyone around the world and for us in particular because many times we needed to get athletes overseas to competition and then the overseas people wouldn't let us travel or because of quarantine requirements, it wasn't practical to travel. So we've been in a constant evaluation of where they can go to get the qualification times, what's the best way to do it, what's the safety situation, yeah. and even to the point where there were uh, extended periods last year where we closed in the whole institute and basically had a closed training camp. And that was Dr. Trisha Leahy on Thursday's Morning Brew. And add oil to all Hong Kong athletes. Hope we get to see new records and more. Opera is an acquired art form that many of us may not understand. Maybe it's due to the fact that all the singing is in a foreign language, such as French or Italian. 
Plus, performances can last up to three hours, which is longer than an average feature film. But what if I told you that there's an upcoming opera performance with multimedia elements other than the usual props? And the play is set in Hong Kong. More than musical, the non-profit opera group gave a modern twist to the classic French opera Carmen and added a little Hong Kong flavor to make it more relatable. Lucy Choi, a classically trained pianist, singer, and co-founder of More Than Musical, tells Noreen Mir on the One Two Three Show about their upcoming production, Carmen Hong Kong. Right. So I was a classically trained musician. I really enjoyed opera myself. But when I went to opera, I'm sorry to say, but most audience they are grey hair people. I was just feeling so out of place, and started from then. I kept thinking: Is there anything we can to do to promote classical music and opera to the younger people, at least people around me, around my age? That's why a few years ago, I'm very lucky to、uh, to have met my more than musical partner. Uh, Rumiko, we decided to create more than musical together to make opera much more、um, easily accessible from the local Hong Kong people. What do you? What, what do people say when you tell them about opera music? What, what comes to their mind, especially younger people? That when you speak to them, I think first of all they have never heard it. They have no interest to try because. Um, inter- entertainment these days are so easy. You know, they can do Netflix. They can go clubbing. They can go. They have a lot of competition. They can go karaoke, right? Why bother to sit there for three hours? You know, just try to figure out whether they like it. And opera has been like a bit too long, and in foreign language. And they thought, you know, how the actor, actress, they look like, you know, they are people in museums, in big costumes, or like they are very fat people. So we want to break down all these taboos people have for opera in our productions. Because they're not. It's actually very stylized performance with really beautiful characters, very beautiful music and sing that accompanies it. And when you actually sit down, you can feel all the goosebumps、oh, yes. sort of rolling over you, and you don't really get that from, I suppose, Netflix or or, or YouTube. Yes. So w- w- when you first started seeing opera in Hong Kong, you were surrounded sort of by, like you said, the grey hair people. Are you noticing a, a, a shift? In- yes, definitely. So we have quite a lot of local talents here. People who have trained abroad, they are very passionate about classical music too. We want to give them more opportunities here, and also all over the world. There are so many well-trained Asian opera singers. But to be honest,、oh, wow. um, it's it's for. You know, Chinese or Asian-looking singers—they have less opportunity. Because think about if you are doing an Italian opera, and why would you cast a Chinese singer versus an Italian singer? Italian、mm. singer, for instance, right? So the the Asian singers have to be extra work extra hard on an extra level to compete with the same opportunity. That's why we are the only. Opera company in Asia doing what we do in terms of、uh, accessible opera, so we want to provide our first、um, opportunity to Asian singers, especially.、Um, so, how relatable do you think Carmen is、uh, to, to, to the audience in Hong Kong? You mentioned just now we are all Carmens.、Mm-hmm. Um, watching the、um, watching the performance, how do you think that the different audience members will relate to to Carmen?、Uh, not just women and and men as well.、Um, 
So it is quite interesting because this opera was meant to be happened before all the social issue, right? And because the character of Carmen is to you know find your own freedom, you know believe in yourself, strike for yourself. So I think from well, that the, perspective, yes, there's that underlying yes, political, I, social. <laughs> yes, but what the audience would pick up is up to themselves. But I think both men and women they can relate more after all that has what's happened. happened in this last two years. Yeah. Um, so More the Musical has been going on for almost five years or just over five years. Oh, yeah. Lucy. Time flies. Time does fly. How do you think the scene, the mu- that the opera music scene has changed in Hong Kong? Uh, definitely much more vibrant. Um, we have more opera companies now. Um, and also we have more well-trained singers and musicians came back. Oh, wow. Or now... Recently stuck in Hong Kong, quite a lot of them, I must say. <laughs> and also another another thing is like we, because uh, usually the arts organizations, they fly in a lot of performers yeah. and that's also got restricted. So actually now the performances in Hong Kong is very Hong Kong artist con- 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 uh, centric. Yeah. Um, I think this is one thing. And another thing is um, the younger generation these days, they are quite um, tech and art selfie. They want to experience something new, especially under technology. So actually, this is something new for them, even though opera is such a long tradition. When you mix in multimedia elements, this becomes something sort of from the future. Yes, and uh, because we adapt the story to modern days, so in the props is like you know film, right? You know, when the celebrity came out, you know, the, all, all the other actor and actresses like they do selfie. You know, it's just like if you see a celebrity today, you would do the same. So it's very relatable, I think. Yeah. Um, Lucy, uh, before I let you go, so it's two days on the 30th and the 31st of uh, July um, at West Kowloon at the uh, Box uh, Free Space. Sometimes I wish they were, you had longer runs. Is there often a restriction from, from the venue that, you know, you get the two days and then that's it? Yes, spot on. Because we have moved like twice already. Yeah. So basically this is, oh, they basically told us, okay, we have like these 10 days free. Because we need um, a few days to set up the venue and then a few days to have rehearsals. So at the end, we could only have two performances. Yeah, and it happens all the time. Every time we get sort of directors and people from uh, theatre companies, that's often the the case. You know, you spend so long rehearsing and then sometimes they only have one day. Yes, So that that happens. But we would definitely plan for a rerun. Yeah. Yeah, because it it has... And actually, we are talking to different opera houses in the world so we may bring Carmen Hong Kong to different um, cities in the world because you can do Carmen Hong Kong here you can do Carmen Tokyo in Tokyo you can do Carmen Singapore it relates to all the people in big cities really Lucy Choi co-founder of More Than Musical on the 123 show don't forget to catch Carmen Hong Kong on the 30th and 31st of July at the Box Free Space West Kowloon Cultural District If you would like to know more about More Than Musical, check out their website, morethanmusical.org. As of 2017, there are more than 300,000 domestic migrant workers working in Hong Kong, which makes up one-tenth of our total working population. In recent months, there have been many reported cases of abuse against domestic migrant workers, and many have suffered in silence. Migrant workers are as important as anyone in our society. They take care of our loved ones while leaving theirs behind. RTHK intern Dorothy Cam spoke to Sheila Bonifaso, chairperson of Gabriel Hong Kong, Alliance of Filipino Women Migrants, 
and one of the leaders of Asian Migrants Coordinating Body about the vulnerability and injustice migrant workers face in Hong Kong. Well, I'm the eldest among the four siblings of my parents, and I took the responsibility to look after our economic problem during that time because my mom is the only one who's earning money, and she's working here in in Hong Kong for almost um, 11 years. And then by that time, we faced a financial crisis in the Philippines and my salary um, as a teacher in the Philippines is not enough to help our financial problem. So that's why I asked my mom if I could come here because uh, I learned that the salary of domestic workers here in Hong Kong is much higher than the salary of a professional teachers in the Philippines. So that's why due to the lack of job opportunity that have a um, sustainable salary that could support our needs, that's the main reason why I came here to work as domestic helper. There are a lot of news about mistreatments in Hong Kong. Um, what was your initial reaction to these news of mistreatments against these workers? For me, um, I was angry and I was a little bit frustrated because I couldn't imagine that um, Hong Kong, one of the first world country and way back in the Philippines, we don't hear much um, maltreatment of domestic workers in Hong Kong. That's why when I came here and uh, the reality faced me and I saw my fellow migrant workers are being abused, of course I was angry and I uh, I said, why they are doing this to human? Like migrant workers are really helping the Hong Kong society so that the husband and wife can go can go to work and then just for a little bit mistake or something misunderstanding um they're being physically verbally abused their domestic workers it's really really uh, i'm i'm really frustrated about it and i'm angry because um this kind of inhumane treatment is happening that should not be can you maybe share an experience of mistreatment that you faced? Well, I came here in 2007, you no, know, and I'm one of the unlucky uh, migrant domestic workers who experienced physically and verbally abused by my employer. So my employer that time uh, have two kids and their kids doesn't follow um, their parents like they are hard-headed um the burden of disciplining their kids was given by me and then the young words that i look after like 11 years old boy was hitting me every time i asked them not to do this kind of crazy things and then i i said it to my employer and then my employer just just say nothing and they said oh they're just kids something like that so they didn't do anything so the conflict arise later later on the physical um abuse made by their son was getting worse and that's also my turning point of asking my employer that 
I will terminate my contract because I cannot do, I cannot tolerate that you couldn't do anything about your son's behavior. That's kind of abuse that, that I'm experienced in the past. During that time, I've been involved in the union. So the union taught me about my rights and how I can protect, something like that. So that's how I involved with the organizations. So from there, I developed this kind of family. And there, I learned a lot. It's not easy if if you don't have anyone to be, you know, to be with you in times of that kind of of situation. I'm lucky enough that the organ I met the organization early. So in in those time, I experienced um verbal abuse. Uh, I always call my my friends in the Mission for Migrant Workers in the Unifil in the Gabriela. So they give me advices on how I can handle the situation inside the house of my employers or something like that. Can you maybe talk about how the Hong Kong government can help and support domestic workers? Yeah, of course, this is always our demand no, with the Hong Kong government in the Asian Migrants Coordinating Body. We always ask the Hong Kong government include the migrant workers in protection um, scheme. And that was Sheila Bonifaso, chairperson of Gabriel Hong Kong. And hopefully, we can stop all unfair treatment, violence, and abuse against all migrant workers. Traveling to space for leisure always seemed like something we cannot witness within our lifetime. We often see something like this in science fiction films and books. But on Tuesday, multimillionaire Jeff Bezos made history by being part of the first unpiloted suborbital flight with an all-civilian crew. And because of that, it opened up the discussion of whether space tourism was made possible. Maybe Hong Kong can be a hub for space travel one day. Quinton Parker, professor of the Department of Physics and director of Space Research Laboratory at the University of Hong Kong, spoke to Hugh Triverton and Andrew Work on the possibilities on whether we can maybe one day step onto a rocket and take a holiday there. Yes, another milestone for uh, um, commercial space flight. I also saw um, the Virgin Galactic uh, flight as well, and they're, of course, very different if you look at them. Mm. I mean, the previous speaker just mentioned about it taking off vertically uh, just like a normal rocket um, with a nice engine, and then uh, uh, the capsule uh, sort of separates at a certain altitude. You then have a couple of minutes in space, and then you come back down to Earth again, both the rocket landing vertically on its own, all completely autonomous, and then the capsule landing a bit like a, a Russian capsule coming down to Earth in Kazakhstan rather than in the ocean, which is what the Apollo did, mm. under parachutes. So that's very uh, reminiscent of those old flights, but it was a uh, whole thing lasted just over 10 minutes from beginning to end. Yeah. And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, one of the things that they were talking about was that when the capsule was, was uh, coming in for its final landing, there were supposed to be booster rockets going off. I didn't see that. And Good point. Did, yes, I was looking for those, which is why I think there was quite a thud and a lot of dust kicked up when it actually stepped down. But clearly, uh, it, nobody was injured or hurt. But uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I was looking for those myself, and I didn't see them either. Yeah, so I was wondering if that was something that went wrong, or, okay, I thought you might... I haven't heard anything yet. I guess we just need to, to see what... I mean, look, it was a sex, successful trip. Everybody's back safe and sound. It was very short duration. 
you know, and uh, whether this is the future of space tourism or not, I don't know, but you've got to start somewhere. I mean, for me, I like the Virgin Galactic, even though it didn't go quite as high, didn't get, get above the so-called Kármán layer at uh, 100 uh, kilometres, it only got mm-hmm. up to about 88 kilometres or so, the Virgin Galactic one. Nevertheless, people on board were still weightless. They were yep. still weightless and they still had that experience of weightlessness. So and then they glided back to Earth like a plane, just like the space shuttle used to do. So they've got two very different systems here. One doesn't go quite as high, but one takes off on the runway. So, you know, our third runway here at Hong Kong, you know, why not? You know, in the future, this could be a space tourism hub, potentially. I know that, uh, uh, you know, the NGO like Orion Astropreneur Space Academy is really pushing space tourism as a new thing, potentially, for Hong Kong. So I think, you know, there might be some traction there in a few years. If, if Richard Branson gets interested in having a base here in Hong Kong, why not? There's a lot of wealthy people here. And as mm-hmm. you said yourself, you know, the, the launch of the, on the Bezos is about going to be about a million dollars per flight if you want to go up for 10 minutes. It's going to cost you a million, north of a million dollars probably. A million US. Um, Virgin Galactic yeah. is only 250,000. Yeah. So, I mean, and of course, those are, those are, you know, crazy numbers for a 10-minute experience. But, of course, like all new things, I mean, when washing machines were first invented, they were considered an insane luxury, an extravagant luxury for the rich and, you know, got to the point where, you know, Absolutely. in the West, you everybody's got uh, them. 2001 or the, pre- no, the, the, the note from a, from a mm. listener. Yeah. And I remember that movie, one of the best movies I've ever seen, but it has a space hotel course in that yeah and uh, i think that's something well that also that companies are looking into seriously for the future you know we're talking about moon bases in a few years and things are ramping up and things are accelerating so i think you know people say decades ahead well it might be sooner than we think there are an awful lot of rich people around that can afford two hundred fifty thousand dollars a ticket and i think uh, richard branson has sold 600 tickets can, can, I mean, they, yeah. can they get more people on them do they i mean squeezing this, this capsule had six seats Oh, yeah? yeah so sorry, three of them that's... were empty. I mean, sorry, two of them were empty. There were uh, four yeah, people, it, weren't there? Yeah. It was full, and in fact, the uh, uh, Wally Funk was saying, you know, she'd like to stay up there longer, but didn't have much room to go and do her, her cartwheels in weightlessness. Yeah. And she, I guess I guess she was one of the real highlights of the story at 82 years old, the oldest person in space. Uh, and I guess part of it was that, now, now, of course, she was a very experienced pilot, but they also had the 18-year-old. But part of the messaging was they had two days of training, which included things like, how to undo your seatbelt? I mean, it wasn't exactly, uh, wasn't exactly, you know, <laughs> years and years of rigorous training. And I guess that was part of the messaging was that if prices come down, you can do this, and you don't have to be a trained astronaut. Absolutely, I think that's a big difference. I remember those pictures of uh, astronauts going around in those big whirling devices, that huge centrifugal forces, so they could survive in yeah. space and lift off, etc. But now, you know, you just go up in your normal clothes almost. And it doesn't matter. You know, you don't have spacesuits. You're not wearing these pressurized spacesuits. You're just wearing normal clothes potentially. With a, you know, it's easy. And <laughs> and the point point of this was to make it look easy to make yeah. it look normal and i think uh, they've succeeded to a degree so i think space tourism i mean even at the chinese university of hong kong here they are starting a space tourism initiative and uh, you know we're meeting them at cyberport uh, in fact on friday with the laboratory of space research people oasa people and them plus cyberport people and i think you know this could be a, a, a start of something here in hong kong that's what we need we need Things like this that grab people's imagination. There's been so much mood music around space travel over the last couple of months, especially with all the incredible stuff happening with the International Space Station, the Chinese Space Station, the Mars, Moon, everything. Now space tourism is all like coming together in this kind of like system, ecosystem. And that was Quentin Parker on Wednesday's Back Chat. And hopefully I wouldn't have to pay a hefty price to experience zero gravity one day.
And finally, to end this week's week on three, we have Steve James, whisking you away to infinity and beyond. I'm Christy Lai. Cheryl Lynn picking up a storm with Got To Be Real. Okay, gang, let's get this party started. Stand by studio. The Steve James Wednesday Drive. This is a job for the legendary Society of Men. Playing out this afternoon's program with the celebration of a birthday, and he was born 1948. His name is Cat Stevens. Famous singer songwriter had the 1967 UK number two single Matthew and Son. Matthew and Son has a great track. Uh, also, the 1972 UK and number one US number six single Morning Has Broken. He wrote the song The First Cut is the Deepest, which has been covered by so many artists. We are celebrating his birthday with a track from the fantastic T for the Tillerman album. This is called Where Do the Children Play? Children play. Hey, 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 hey. 